Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. When hearing the words Del Rio and immigration, most people may think of the national outrage that broke out when it was revealed that Border Patrol used whips to keep migrants from crossing the border in Del Rio, Texas. Under the International Bridge in Del Rio in Texas, a camp that's become home to thousands and which reveals yet another crisis at the border in America. They cross the Rio Grande River that forms the border between the US and Mexico, most of them Haitians, willing to take the chance that they will be processed and allowed in, willing to tolerate what's been described as a squalid existence here. It is these pictures of border patrol agents on horseback pushing migrants into the river that have caused so much anger. For some, they carry the echoes of the worst chapters of American history. But as all news cycles go, the outrage eventually died out. The publications moved on to stories and the social media posts changed. But the reality is there was so much more to the story. So beginning around September 9th of this past year, over 15,000 Haitian migrants waited to seek asylum under the Del Rio International Bridge in Texas. And these were people who were really desperate to save their lives and the lives of their families. And instead of allowing these people the chance to apply for the legal relief that they're entitled to under law, the U.S. government responded by trapping these people in the encampment and restricting their access to food, water, medical care, basic necessities, and also physically and verbally abusing them. And the situation very quickly became a massive humanitarian crisis that sparked international outrage. This is Sarah Decker, staff attorney at Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights, an organization advocating for human rights issues and pursuing strategic litigation to hold governments accountable on both the domestic and international levels. Sarah is also the co-author of Beyond the Bridge, a 2022 report documenting abuses towards Haitian immigrants in a Texas-based encampment. As Sarah explains, at least 15,000 Haitian migrants and several hundred other nationals were trapped in this makeshift camp set out by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection near the Del Rio International Bridge. It became known as the Del Rio Encampment. From there, the U.S. government subjected the migrants to rampant human rights abuses and civil rights violations. By September 25, 2021, DHS had emptied and cleared the camp with bulldozers. The government has basically erased all remaining evidence of the abusive conditions. With the evidence gone, there is no concrete way to hold the government accountable. To understand the legal framework under which Department of Homeland Security, DHS, and the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, operate the government's consistent pattern of lying to detainees while restricting their access to humanitarian and legal aid, the current migration situation, and so much more, we at Immigrantly have partnered with Sarah Decker to tell a holistic story of Del Rio. To set the stage, we asked Sarah about the process of putting together the report and its need. 
here's Sarah explaining how the piece came together and the obstacles the team faced in creating a cohesive account of what happened at Del Rio. When people first started arriving under the Del Rio International Bridge, mostly families and family units with very small children, there were no humanitarian groups on the ground. And so we actually received a call from our very close partner, Geraldine Joseph, who leads an organization called Haitian Bridge Alliance, asking us to come down with a group of advocates and lawyers to assess the situation and to try to provide legal relief to those who were trapped in the encampment. We arrived in Del Rio, Texas on September 18th, and by this time, there were already thousands of people trapped under the Del Rio International Bridge. And so one of the first things that we did was develop a Know Your Rights Guide in Haitian Creole that provided information on how to apply for asylum and legal protection in the U.S., And our goal was to be able to enter the camp, access those people that were trapped underneath the bridge, and provide Know Your Rights trainings and give them this information, because we knew that so many of these people under the bridge had bona fide asylum claims and had a valid legal claim for protection and that their rights were not being respected by the U.S. government. We also were really desperate to access the camp so that we could provide food, water, and other necessities that we knew that people were lacking and were really desperate to have to survive. But unfortunately, the Department of Homeland Security repeatedly refused to allow us to enter the camp. And because of that, we were limited really to assisting those individuals who were processed in the encampment and released to the local respite center in Del Rio. And during that time, the initial week of the humanitarian crisis in Del Rio, the camp became a black box of information. The airspace above the camp was closed very quickly. The entire camp was completely militarized. Governor Abbott had sent multiple law enforcement agencies. The National Guard was there. And the camp was restricted to only a few individuals who were provided CBP escorts. And from what we saw, this included Fox News and Breitbart News. On the crisis at the southern border, nearly 11,000 migrants, predominantly from Haiti, are packed under the international bridge between Del Rio and Mexico, with sources telling Fox News that another 10,000 are waiting to join them. Bill Malugin is live in Del Rio, Texas with more and including the federal government clipping your wings a little bit, Bill. Yeah, John, good morning to you. We'll get to that in a second. That uh, international bridge is just right off my shoulder right now and the numbers of migrants under there have really just exploded over the last two days. And what you're looking at here is what sources are telling us are more than 10,500 migrants waiting underneath that international bridge here in Del Rio. What's happening is they are crossing illegally from Ciudad Acuna, the Mexican town right across from Del Rio. They're walking across the Rio Grande and then showing up here in the United States and having to wait underneath that bridge. The reason for that is because Border Patrol is so overwhelmed. They don't have the manpower to process these folks and their holding facilities out here no longer have capacity. They're well over capacity, so there's not really anywhere for these folks to go. These are mostly Haitian migrants. We spoke with a number of journalists from other outlets who told us that they were actually prevented from themselves entering the camp and reporting on the camp. And so we saw a number of journalists attempting to cross from Ciudad Acuna on the other side of the border to access these people under the bridge and to learn more about what was actually happening in the initial days of the crisis. 
And so for the remainder of the week, while we continued to plead with DHS to allow us to enter the camp, we ended up providing humanitarian and transportation assistance alongside our partners to the people who were released to the local respite center run by the Valverde Border Humanitarian Coalition. And we estimate that approximately 800 people were released to this respite center. And the vast majority of these people were extremely vulnerable and sick. We're talking pregnant women and their partners, infants, babies, people who were very sick and really in critical need of medical attention. And so as we spoke with these people, helped them reunite with their families and give them some of their urgent needs, we started to learn a bit more about what was going on in the camp. We started to learn about the processing that was taking place about the fact that people were starving in the camp and were extremely dehydrated. We started hearing reports of pregnant women giving birth inside the camp and being denied medical treatment. And we started to piece together that this was a much more sinister situation than even we had expected at that point. As the Biden administration started to face really intense national and international scrutiny for its treatment of those Haitian people in Del Rio, they worked very quickly to clear the camp. And by September 25th, the entire camp had been emptied, decompressed and cleared. The vast majority of the people who were in the camp were deported and forced on expulsion flights back to Haiti. Many were pushed back into Mexico and only about 800 were released to us at the respite center. The Biden administration facing pressure from both sides of the aisle as it proceeds with mass deportations of thousands of migrants camped out under a bridge on the Rio Grande. This morning, the Biden administration facing a political battle on both sides over the border crisis and mass deportations in Del Rio, Texas. We will get it under control. Roughly 8,000 migrants, many Haitian, remaining under that Del Rio bridge waiting to be processed. Thousands of migrants have already been sent back to their home countries. And so once the camp was cleared, we were still very eager to access the people who, who had been inside to learn more both about the human rights abuses that had occurred during the days that, that the camp was operated and to also try to access those people and provide legal information to help them figure out their next steps. So we traveled across the U.S.-Mexico border to Ciudad Acuna when the border opened, where there were hundreds and hundreds of people from the Del Rio encampment who had sought refuge in migrant shelters in Acuna. And we traveled to two of these migrant shelters and we were able to provide legal screenings and know your rights presentations to approximately 300 individuals. And this helped us really learn more about what happened in the Del Rio encampment. So the report itself features the testimonies of 43 survivors. Many of these people are people that we were able to have longer conversations with in Ciudad Acuna at the migrant shelters. Many of these people are individuals that we were able to get in touch with after the camp had been cleared. And in the six months following the dismantling of the camp, we conducted follow-up interviews with survivors to learn what had happened to them in the months since the camp had been closed. And we learned that many of these people had been forcibly expelled back to Haiti, many had been pushed back to Mexico, and many had been processed and detained in really egregious conditions by ICE. We learned of family separations, 
and the separation of couples from young children and loved ones. And through these conversations, we learned more about how the U.S. government's abuse of Haitians in Del Rio was simply part of a larger Haitian deterrence policy that has become the day-to-day reality for those Haitians seeking protection in the U.S. By far the most difficult part of writing this report was the fact that the U.S. government operated with zero transparency and turned the situation in Del Rio into really a black box of information. It took us weeks, even for those of us who were on the ground and witnessing these atrocities, weeks to piece together a timeline of what had happened, to get a better understanding of the full scope of the harms that had occurred. For example, weeks later, we were connected with an individual who described to us his treatment in CBP processing. So this is an individual who was processed in the encampment, given a ticket. His name was called. He was traveling with his family, including several young children. And he told us just the extent of what was happening in these CBP facilities that we were unable to access in Texas and Arizona, where people are held while they wait to board expulsion flights to Haiti under Title 42. And so by connecting with these individuals in the months after September, we were able to trace all of the harms that occurred, the full scope of abuse from the moment that they entered the camp and attempted to seek asylum, to the moment that they were whipped and chased across the Rio Grande by CBP officers on horseback, to the moment when their ticket was called and they were transferred to CBP custody and held for sometimes up to 11 days without proper food, water, access to a shower or medical care, and where many of those people were then forced onto expulsion flights and told that they were going to a church or to a different detention center in Florida, for example, only to step off the plane and learn that they had been, in fact, returned to Haiti, a country that many hadn't been to in over five or six years. But even after speaking with all of these individuals, there's still a great deal of information that we don't know. And so we've actually filed over 30 public information and FOIA requests alongside our partners in an attempt to really piece together some of the outstanding questions. For example, we're still trying to learn about DHS's process of the internal investigation that they promised to do of the conduct of CBP officers in the Del Rio encampment. We're still trying to understand the processing itself and what legal mechanisms were used to determine who was allowed to enter the country under Title 42 and who was expelled. Back to Haiti, we came across a sister, a twin sister, who was released to the respite center and her twin was actually expelled back to Haiti. So there really was no rhyme or reason to the processing that occurred in the Del Rio encampment. We also know that under Title 42, those who have a valid claim of persecution are still able to request protection under something called the shout test, where if they affirmatively request protection under the Convention Against Torture, they must be allowed to enter the U.S. and seek asylum. And we know that we encountered a number of individuals who had valid asylum claims but we're denied that protection. So we're eager to learn more about how the U.S. government is actually providing these exceptions to Title 42 for those who are legally required to be able to seek protection in the U.S. And so while we wait to get some answers to these questions and to get information back from our public information requests, we felt it was really important to release this report on the six-month anniversary 
of the Del Rio encampment being closed to show the full extent and the full scope of abuses and to show people that what happened to those individuals under the bridge, the viral photo of Merard Joseph being beaten by a CBP agent, that those are all simply everyday features of the U.S. immigration system for Haitians attempting to seek protection here. And so having those follow-up conversations and tracing those individuals who had been inside the camp in the six months following, its closure was designed to show the full scope of abuses that occurred beyond the harms under the Del Rio International Bridge in mid-September. So let's go back to this idea of a broader Haitian deterrence policy that Sarah mentioned. For us to fully understand this issue, it's essential that we must know the historical context of Haiti's long entanglement with the U.S. and how that's turned into an immigration crisis. Here's a quick history lesson for folks, which can also be found in the report. The history of discriminatory treatment begins with the U.S.'s attempts to stop Haitian social movements for Black liberation from expanding. In 1804, The Haitian Revolution happened, Haiti declared independence from France and became the first country to abolish slavery. This marked the creation of the first free black nation in the Western Hemisphere and the only nation to gain independence through the uprising of enslaved people. This threatened the U.S. racial hierarchy maintained by slavery and the U.S. refused to recognize the new Haitian state. President Woodrow Wilson ordered a U.S. invasion and occupation of Haiti in July 1915. They moved Haiti's financial reserves to the U.S. and rewrote its constitution to give foreigners land-owning rights. During this military occupation, Haiti saw an erosion of local governance and destabilization of its economic and political geographies. During the following decades, the U.S. government upheld successive authoritarian regimes in Haiti as U.S. soldiers killed thousands of Haitians. One of the regimes was the Duvalier father-son dictatorship from 1957 to 1986. The Duvalier regime has been called the most oppressive regime in the hemisphere and resulted in the death of over 30,000 Haitians and forced hundreds of thousands to flee the country. And as this was happening, the U.S. blocked Haitians from entering U.S. territory. In addition, they jailed arriving Haitians and universally denied their asylum claims despite the known atrocities being committed by the Duvalier regime at the time. The policy, also known as the Haitian Program, was designed to expel Haitian asylum applicants as rapidly as possible. From 1981 to 1991, the U.S. intercepted approximately 22,000 Haitians at sea, basically returning migrants to Haiti without screening them for asylum. As a result, only 28 Haitian migrants were allowed into the United States to pursue asylum claims in these 10 years. These efforts laid out the groundwork for the modern-day U.S. immigration detention regime. As the number of arriving Haitians grew, the U.S. began to detain them at offshore prison camps in Guantanamo Bay, 
at least 12,000 Haitians were held at the U.S. military prison, packed into tents and surrounded by rows of razor wire. They had no access to legal representation. Their immigration officers quickly conducted asylum interviews and forcibly deported them to Haiti. Fast forward to today, our immigration detention system continues to detain Haitians and other black immigrants disproportionately. According to reports by advocacy group RISES, almost half of the individuals detained by ICE are Haitian. In addition, since the pandemic started, the number of Haitian families in detention went up by 44%. It's a lot to stomach, right? But it's essential to understand it so we don't assume that the incidents at Del Rio are isolated. We've been doing this for centuries. It's as American as apple pie. So the U.S. continues to justify the use of ICE detention centers throughout the country for several reasons. First, there is an inherent racism to our U.S. immigration system where migration in this country is criminalized. But what's important to realize is that immigration proceedings are actually not under the criminal legal system. They're a civil enforcement mechanism. So what this means is that people who are in ICE detention That detention is not supposed to be punitive because they haven't committed a criminal violation. They've committed a civil violation. It's a civil process. And so what the government claims is that detention of immigrants is needed to make sure that people show up to their court hearings and that they don't evade deportation. But we know that that's not true. And actually, the vast majority of people, over 90%, who are waiting for their immigration hearings in community, at home with their loved ones, show up for their court appointments. And that number actually rises when they're represented by an attorney. So the Haitians that we spoke with who were not turned away by asylum restriction policies like Title 42 are processed under Title VIII, which is business as usual. And they face inhumane and discriminatory treatment in detention facilities operated by ICE, including medical neglect, severe deprivation of necessities, and anti-Black violence and abuse. And the ICE detention regime itself includes over 200 facilities across the country. At this point in time, they detain over 20,000 individuals, and an additional 200,000 are surveilled through ICE alternative detention programs. That includes the use of electronic ankle shackles and ankle monitors that severely restrict an individual's freedom of movement. And what we've seen is that in the past few years, especially under the Trump administration since 2017, ICE has started to concentrate the growth of its jail network in rural areas that are far from cities and are far from the places where immigrants are typically detained, for example, in Texas and Arizona. So what we're seeing is that people cross the border and their families are in New York and New Jersey or California. And instead of being detained in a place where they have access to their families and their loved ones, they're being transferred all over the country to places like rural Louisiana, 
where they're very far from urban centers, very far from legal assistance, from pro bono networks of, of folks where they could actually get legal assistance. And what we're seeing is that these people have a significantly more difficult time winning their asylum cases because they don't have an attorney. They often are unrepresented and are operating pro se. And they just don't have the same network of community and family support that they would have if they were close to their loved ones. I appreciate this insight from Sarah because it shows us how psychologically abusive our immigration system is. Ankle shackles and monitors, the deliberate placement of detainees in rural areas, isolation from their families and networks of support, all of it. All of it is intentional. To be honest, the concept of dehumanization can be applied to the carceral system in a nutshell. But that's a larger conversation for a different day. Going back to the case of the Haitian migrants at Del Rio, here's more to understand about the legal context that allows these violations to occur without accountability. Here's Sarah again. So the Del Rio encampment was a makeshift CBP or Customs and Border Patrol field encampment that was to be used for field processing. So that means that it's subject to CBP's own guidelines. But what's important to note is that your human rights and civil rights do not disappear just because you're an immigrant or because you're in ICE or CBP custody. And actually, ICE and CBP have their own guidelines for treatment of people they detain, including the provision of medical resources, food, water, length of detention. But unsurprisingly, when it comes to providing people with care and basic necessities, ICE and CBP don't even follow their own guidelines in most cases. So one example of this is the fact that DHS refused to allow us to access the camp, which prevented us from interviewing survivors and witnesses in order to document DHS's own misconduct. And as a result, many of the witnesses that were really crucial to an investigation of DHS's conduct were expelled back to Haiti in violation of ICE's own directives. ICE's own directives actually instruct the agency to not perform civil immigration enforcement against victims or witnesses who are participating in criminal investigations. And this includes qualifying crimes that we saw in Del Rio, such as felonious assault and obstruction of justice. So essentially, by deporting and disappearing witnesses and survivors of DHS's own crimes, they were preventing the investigation to take place in a meaningful way. DHS also has certain legal obligations when it detains individuals. So we argue that during the time when CBP officers had the Del Rio encampment surrounded on all sides, you had military vehicles and armored vehicles outside of the camp. You had CBP officers patrolling on horseback. And then you had, of course, the deadly Rio Grande River. So that these people were surrounded on all four sides by either militarized response or the dangerous Rio Grande River. And thus they were legally detained and DHS had an obligation or a heightened duty of care to provide for those individuals. Because when you're detained by the U.S. government and can't provide food, medical care, water to yourself, the government has an obligation and a legal duty to provide those necessities for you. We know that in the Del Rio encampment, appropriate food was not available until World Central Kitchen, which is another non-governmental organization, was able to actually negotiate access to the encampment and set up operations to begin providing substantial meals 
sometime around the week of September 19th. But by the time World Central Kitchen had scaled its operations, DHS had already started clearing out the Del Rio encampment. So for that time period between September 9th and September 24th, CBP personnel were denying those individuals in the camp food and water beyond, you know, a piece of bread and a warm water bottle every day. So we know that we have evidence of DHS breaching its duty of care to the people who were effectively detained in the Del Rio encampment. And that extends not only to the deprivation of food and water, but also the deprivation of life-saving medical care to the people that were trapped there. And then, of course, the physical and verbal abuse that those people experienced. Those were all legal violations. So the question becomes, why were those laws not enforced properly? And why has there been no accountability for any of the people who were trapped in the Del Rio encampment? There are also laws in place, both U.S. laws and international laws, that guarantee the right to seek asylum and other forms of protection at the U.S.-Mexico border. And we know that the U.S. government in the Del Rio encampment was able to bypass those protections and those laws through something called Title 42. And Title 42 is essentially a public health statute that was weaponized under the Trump administration and has been used to close the U.S.-Mexico border to asylum seekers for a number of years. Title 42 really flies in the face of our humanitarian obligations that are enshrined in our foundational parts of domestic and international law. So, for example, U.S. law requires that people who arrive at the border and express what's called a credible fear of persecution or torture in their home country have access to a fear screening before they're deported. So these people must have an opportunity to explain their fear of persecution before they're returned to the hands of their persecutors in their home country. We also know that U.S. law safeguards the right to seek asylum in the U.S. whether or not you arrive at a designated port of arrival. And expelling people without access to asylum or without performing any credible fear screenings, as was the case in Del Rio, is a violation of international obligations to ensure that people aren't returned to persecution or torture. And the reason that Title 42 is a policy in direct contravention of our U.S. and international laws still exists is really because of these xenophobic and racist tropes of a border crisis that have been co-opted by conservative Republicans to push for the continuation of this really abusive and inhumane policy. And here's another thing to consider. The Biden administration was planning on ending Title 42, but a Louisiana federal judge prevented this from happening by issuing an injunction against ending it. So the U.S. can continue its treatment of migrants in the same way they had before. What's mind-boggling about this is that the power of a state's federal judge is able to block the intentions of the presidency. And here's an interesting irony for you. In case you need a refresher, Biden ran on high claims that called the denial of asylum and family separation in detention centers a moral failure. To quote his campaign, it's wrong and it stops when Joe Biden is elected president. Coyotes didn't bring them over. Their parents were with them. They got separated from their parents. And it makes us a laughing stock and violates every notion of who we are as a nation. Makes you reevaluate the consolidation and placement of power in our government and the true impact of our vote, right? 
If you're here, I know you're really interested in change. So I am excited to tell you about Undistracted, a weekly podcast from my friends at Meteor, hosted by activist and educator Brittany Packnett Cunningham. Every week, Brittany takes a very personal look at the news from an intersectional feminist viewpoint, which you know I like. Brittany talks to each week's newsmakers about the change they strive for every day. So you'll hear from folks like Anita Hill, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Congresswoman Cori Bush, Tracy Ellis Ross, Tarana Burke, and more. Plus, she'll catch you up on the latest untrending news. Stuff you might have missed that you definitely need to know. Undistracted comes out weekly on Thursdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or Odyssey. And you can find The Meteor at The Meteor on Instagram. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens because I wanted better gut health and wanted a supplement that actually tastes great and also wanted to see what the hype was all about. Now I have been on it for a few weeks and I love it. Fun fact, it doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical taste and I actually look forward to it each morning. With just one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's how I take it. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It's also important to note that we're hoping that a variety of these violations will come through an investigation of DHS itself. So on September 22nd, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas actually pledged an internal investigation of the events at Del Rio. And he said that this investigation, quote, would be completed in days, not weeks. But we know that over six months have passed by now and no investigation results have been released to the public and instead, we, alongside our partners, were forced to resort to other measures to try to get accountability for these actions. That includes the class action lawsuit in federal court, HBA versus Biden, that our partners brought a civil rights complaint with the DHS Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, and 32 separate information requests through the Freedom for Information Act and the Texas Public Information Act. All of these different mechanisms remain pending at this time. So what that means in the meantime is that the survivors of Del Rio continue to be denied justice for the harms that they've suffered in the encampment and beyond. And as the public got onto these abuses, the encampment was promptly destroyed. 
Once the Biden administration really started to face this intense international scrutiny for its treatment of those in the Del Rio encampment, and the picture of a Haitian man later identified as Murad Joseph being whipped by a CBP officer on horseback went viral, we saw DHS really start to work quickly to dismantle and decompress the encampment at really an unprecedented speed. So we saw that DHS was at the simultaneously restricting the access of advocates, lawyers, and journalists from entering the camp while using bulldozers to raise the area, rapidly processing and expelling people or essentially forcing people to flee back to Mexico. And they were able to disappear the entirety of the encampment, including those witnesses and survivors who would have been really central to being able to properly hold DHS accountable for its actions. And the mass expulsions of Haitians from Del Rio under Title 42 was really conducted with unprecedented speed. In a matter of days, we estimate that out of the 15,000 people that were in the encampment, only about 780 to 800 were processed and released to the respite center. The rest of those individuals were expelled back to Haiti. They were taken into CBP custody for processing. They were transferred into long-term ICE detention, or they were pushed back into Mexico. So the realities of how quickly the government was able to dismantle this camp were really central to why we were unable to collect witness testimony and survivor testimony, why we had such great difficulty piecing together the story of the full scope of abuses that occurred and are really central to the reason why DHS and the U.S. government have not been held accountable for the actions that took place under the Del Rio Bridge. And after the camp was cleared, there were several different realities that people faced. So. There were those who were luckily released, the 780 to 800 people who were released to the respite center where we were working. They were provided with some short-term essentials, clothing, temporary shelter. They were assisted with getting a bus ticket and were able to reunite with their families in the U.S. However, the reality for the majority of people in the camp was much darker than that. We had people who were taken into CBP custody for up to 11 days and held packed into jail cells in inhumane conditions, all just to be expelled back to Haiti under Title 42, forced on deportation flights, many without their knowledge of where they were going. We had people who were transferred from CBP custody into ICE detention and were detained for much longer periods of time, some weeks, months, and, you know, could be years held in detention in, again, extremely abusive conditions in rural areas. We spoke with many who had been transferred to rural Louisiana under the NOLA ICE field office, which is notorious for anti-Black and racist treatment of people who are detained. And then the other option was that many were pushed back into Mexico, where they live in hiding in migrant shelters and remain at imminent risk of kidnapping, rape, violence from both criminal gangs and Mexican immigration authorities. So really a small fraction of people were able to be successfully processed and released into community care from the camp the majority continue to live to this day at imminent risk of violence. 
To this day, the U.S. government under the Biden administration continues to expel Haitians under Title 42. So there have been 262 flights back to Haiti, expelling over 25,000 Haitians since Biden took office. And since the Del Rio encampment was closed since mid-September 2021, DHS has expelled 23,500 Haitians on 225 flights. So we're seeing that the vast majority of those expulsions have actually occurred in the aftermath of the Del Rio crisis. And those who are expelled on flights back to Haiti end up returning to a country facing multiple severe humanitarian crises, the recent earthquake, the assassination of the president, the tropical storm that took place immediately after. And we spoke with many, many people who left Haiti over eight years ago. These are people who are survivors of the 2010 earthquake and have been living in Chile, in Brazil, in Mexico, patiently waiting to ask for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border. Many get off of the plane and they don't even recognize the country that they fled so long ago. And what's especially devastating is that they now don't have those family and community connections in Haiti and are subjected to extreme risk of violence. They don't have access to essentials. They experience joblessness and homelessness. And also those individuals who fled persecution in Haiti are now being returned to the hands of their persecutors. So one individual that we spoke with, a man who was separated from his wife and children in the U.S., and when he was forcibly returned to Haiti on an expulsion flight in December after walking and surviving across the border and being held at Del Rio, when he was returned to Haiti, he was contacted by the very same people who originally tortured and abused him, who he had fled from years earlier. So what this tells us is that these people who are being expelled back to Haiti, who are being returned, it is a violation of international and U.S. law. We have many examples of people with strong, viable asylum claims who are being forcibly returned and upon being returned are facing the exact violence and persecution that they originally fled. That is the definition of the U.S.'s international obligation to not return people to credible fear of persecution. And so the closing of the Del Rio encampment with zero accountability, no reparations for those harmed, we don't consider that to be a victory. And even though the national media has turned away from the abuse of Haitian migrants, the very same people who were in that encampment, who were underneath the bridge, continue to suffer today. Whether they're living in Haiti and hiding, whether they're detained in an ICE jail in rural Louisiana, the very same people who were under the bridge in Del Rio continue to struggle, are continuing to experience violence and abuse. And that is because they were forcibly returned and abused by the U.S. government. When it comes to immigration, a lot of rhetoric about feeling helpless gets thrown around in discussions. Statements like, what can we do? So many factors and agents play a part in our systems, and I am just one person. But the way I see it, the individual perception permeates the collective thinking. What we have heard so far sheds light on an important issue. There's a clear hierarchy of immigration in the US, with white immigrants at the top and black folks at the bottom while other ethnicities, including brown immigrants, are finding their space within this binary. 
So how do we become allies to our fellow black immigrants? What does coalition building look like? How do we move past internalized racism to raise our voices against injustices? I don't have answers for these questions. I hope you do. And while it's true that a lot of factors are in play, we must understand that proximity to hope is a tiered system of privilege. To reiterate my earlier point, the government picks and chooses which groups can feel hope time and time again. We have seen the needs of black and brown immigrants disregarded. While white immigrants are somehow afforded miraculous aid. But don't just take my word for it. Here's Sarah discussing the dichotomy between the treatment of different racial groups of immigrants. The story of Del Rio is really about racial justice in this country. We believe that immigration is a racial justice issue, immigration is a Black issue, and that the experiences of Black people at the U.S.-Mexico border are an extension of the horrible, horrific treatment of Black Americans in the United States by police, and that our immigration enforcement regime is an extension of our criminal legal system. And what we saw last week with the Buffalo massacre and this use of the racist and xenophobic replacement theory is really important to understanding the full scope of what happened under the Del Rio Bridge. The replacement theory is essentially this longstanding theory that black and brown people are quote-unquote invaders who are entering our country in order to displace white people in the United States. And the racist and xenophobic tropes that are encompassed by that theory are extremely applicable to our treatment of migrants who are attempting to cross the U.S. And we can see that in the disparity between how white and black and brown migrants are treated at the U.S.-Mexico border. So most recently, because of the war in Ukraine, we saw a surge of Ukrainians seeking asylum and refugee status at the U.S.-Mexico border. And what was important to note is that the U.S. government actually welcomed and processed 20,000 Ukrainian refugees at a port of entry at the U.S.-Mexico border. There were 15,000 Haitians, at least, underneath the Del Rio International Bridge. So the U.S. government, in welcoming those 20,000 Ukrainian refugees, as they should have, demonstrated that when they have the political will, they have the capacity, they have the infrastructure, they have the resources to welcome people in a humane way that doesn't involve beating them, that doesn't involve starving them, denying them medical care, chasing them with officers on horseback, that doesn't involve ICE detention or any type of prolonged custody. What we saw at the border with Ukrainians was what our immigration system can look like and is a really good example of the racial disparities that we see in everyday aspects of the U.S. immigration system. And those racial disparities impact Haitians, as documented in our report, but they also impact all Black people seeking protection at the border, whether that's from Caribbean nations or from African nations. 
We also want to emphasize that the U.S.'s current operations on the U.S.-Mexico border make it very likely that a humanitarian crisis like what occurred at Del Rio could very easily happen again. We are seeing at ports of entry people gathering and attempting to seek asylum who are blocked by Title 42. It's turning into a humanitarian crisis when the government doesn't respond to those people with proper infrastructure and with the supplies, resources, and capacity necessary to follow our U.S. and international laws and process those people accordingly. And it's so important for listeners to understand that the U.S. immigration system doesn't have to be this way, and that humane alternatives to these really cruel, inhumane, racist policies do exist. For example, we know that instead of detaining people for months or years in ICE jails, we can release them so that they can wait in their homes with their families and loved ones for their immigration hearings. And instead of trapping people in a makeshift encampment and starving and beating them, we can process asylum seekers into the U.S. effectively. And the Border Shelter Network and humanitarian coalitions are waiting and are ready to work with the U.S. government to welcome asylum seekers and help them reunite with their loved ones in the U.S. So the humanitarian disaster that we saw at Del Rio and the disasters that we see at our border are not created by hordes of migrants, but rather by the U.S.'s militarized and abusive response to people seeking protection. If the U.S. government had responded to reports that people were gathering under the bridge in Del Rio with resources, with capacity, if they had spent their money and time preparing for those people to arrive and setting up a humane way to process them, then that disaster wouldn't have occurred in the first place. So we know that when the U.S. government is mobilized and willing to welcome people, they can do so in a way that avoids the tragedies that occurred under the bridge in Del Rio. Here's the thing. When putting together an episode like this, we often ask ourselves what the intention was. Well, for us, it was mainly to educate our listeners. But what else can we do with all this information? How do we synthesize it into actionable items? Simply put, we need structural changes that will shift the fundamental structure of our immigration system. But how do we initiate that change, you may ask? For starters, vote. But simply voting doesn't even seem to scratch the surface. Instead, as we know, we also need to mobilize and build coalitions. This brings me back to my original point. How do we sustain a passion for a movement? How do we keep advocacy going so that it reaches a point where change can happen? Tangible change. Especially when the most significant obstacles are in form of our bureaucracy. These are the questions that I am left with and something I ask you to ruminate over. Our team would love to hear your thoughts. Special thanks to Sarah Decker from the RFK Human Rights for providing this insight. We highly recommend checking out their report. If you Google Beyond the Bridge, Del Rio report, the whole report will appear in PDF form. Take some time to read it and familiarize yourself with the history that allows for these abuses to take place. This episode was written by Sarah Doe, 
produced by me, Sadia Khan, and Kinza Muzahir. Our editor for this episode is Manny Simon. As always, thank you for listening. We hope you've walked away from this feeling more informed and ready to mobilize, however that may look like for you. Until next time, take care.